Last week, Brendan introduced our series, Don't Waste Your... We really came up with this idea because we're aware of two things. Firstly, over the summer, people do go away so much, which is fine, and different people are away at different times, so it's not the most ideal time to carry on with the book of Philippians because when people return, they realise they've missed the last four weeks um, and it can be hard to catch up sometimes. So doing a series like this enables us to take individual themes and topics, um, which I think could be advantageous. Secondarily, I think taking themes and topics like this can be helpful because I'm called as a pastor and to ensure that I'm teaching the whole counsel of the Lord. Well, there's certain things then that really only work well when you're addressing them as themes and topics. Otherwise, you have to wait 15 years until it comes up in a certain book of the Bible that you happen to be preaching. And there's a time to slow people down and say, this is important, let's address this, let's address it ex- exegetically. But let's nonetheless address it. And today then, I, I want to look at suffering. And I want to examine the question of what does it look like to ensure that we don't waste our suffering. Be grateful then if you turn with me to Psalm 121. And I'm just going to pray and ask the Lord for his help before we do anything else. Well, Lord, we do thank you for your word. Oh, Lord, as I stand here addressing these people whom I love, Lord, I'm just a guy just a regular guy. And yet you in a moment can take your word through regular guys like me and speak into hearts in which in a manner that it dictates and changes our whole year. Oh Lord, I pray that you would do that today. Would you quicken our hearts to your word? Would you speak to our very souls? Would you prepare us for the journey ahead of what this year will hold? Lord, help us by your amazing grace. Amen. In 2001, for Emma and I, started exactly the same as any other year. We had a party on New Year's Eve. We were living in, in the US at the time, just outside DC. I was at Pastors College and we had a party. We gathered with a few people and we, you know, played some card games, we sang some songs, we waited on the, for the news to cover all the, the footage of mid, when midnight would eventually arrive. I remember the New York, the ball thing, is that right? The ball that comes down and you think, oh, it's not Big Ben. There's not the bong, but, but there was a ball. And, and then, then somebody told me it was 12 o'clock and you think, game on. The fireworks go off and you're all celebrating and you're excited about what the year holds. And as far as Emma and I were concerned, it would just hold another year like the one before. We'd got married in the April of 2000. We're now heading into 2001, finish at Pastors College, go back to Christchurch, become a pastor. This is great. It started just like any other year. But in the April of 2001, I started to experience intense abdominal pain. To start off with, I just thought I'd pulled my stomach muscle or something like that. And so I remember getting some of that deep heat stuff, and just because it was so painful, just rubbing it everywhere. And then I realised this is deep, deep heat. I was practically on fire. I remember having to put like water on myself to try and cool down. But nothing would shift this pain. And for a number of days, I had this pain. And I did what every man does. You don't even think about going to the doctor. You know, because that's for children and, and women. But men, you know, you stuff it out. And you're like, yeah, I'm clearly on fire, I'm clearly in pain, probably on death's door, but I think I'll be fine. And yet the pain got steadily worse. And I remember it was the time of year, April, that my parents were actually due to come out and visit Emma and I. And actually Emma's parents 
as well. And they arrived asking how I was. I said, you know, I seem very well. I go, oh, I've got a bit of pain. And Should you go to the doctor? No, I probably won't rush to do that, but I, I probably will at some point. And I remember just going for this walk around a lake and every step was like a scene out of Lord of the Rings. It was just like every step was just so hard. Who will carry me? And I remember, I remember just going around the lake and just saying to Emma, I think my stomach really hurts. And she said, just stop whining. You've just been whining all the time. This is the type of relationship we have. And I said, I'm sorry, dear. I know I'm whining again, and thank you for bringing it to my attention. I had my own back on her later in the day as the story continues. But as I walked around the lake, I was in a lot of pain, and I got home, and I lay down, and all of a sudden, I felt better. I mean, I was, I was good to go. I was complete. I thought, I'm, I'm healed. Thank you, Jesus. No doctor needed. I'm fine. Well, two hours later, I went to bed that evening, and within five minutes, I woke up with a pain like I'd never felt before. It felt like somebody had run up to me and punched me in the stomach and it just didn't release. It just stayed exactly. So I couldn't get my breath. I was rushed to the hospital and when I arrived at A&E, they told me that I had had an appendicitis but that had actually ruptured and it was now poisoning my body. And maybe I should have gone to the doctors. But as I lay in A&E, I was coming in and out of consciousness They started to pump me with morphine, but that really wasn't doing anything at all. And all I remember is I lay on this A&E bed and coming in and out of consciousness, waking up at one point, being in pain, and hearing the doctor say to Emma, you should prepare to lose him. I was shocked, yeah. But I was in and out of what's even going on. I had to go through a number of CAT scans. I couldn't have an operation for actually a day because my body was so poisoned that they had to pump me with litres and litres and litres of antibiotics just to effectively flush my system out. And it was three days later that I actually had the operation and then recovered from the operation. But you know, I'll never forget that moment when I'm lying in that bed and the doctor is telling my wife that I should, she should prepare to lose me. That year started like any other year. But in April... It looked like my time on this earth was coming to an end. And suffering can be like that, can't it? One minute you're fine, you're just cracking on with your life, you think everything's good to go, and then boom! And your life is radically turned around in a way that you hadn't anticipated, you hadn't seen taking place, but in a moment it happens. You go to the hospital for a routine checkup, and they give you bad news. News that you hadn't seen coming. The girl that you were hoping to marry, that you thought it was all good to go with, decides, I, I don't want to marry you. I, I don't think this is what God has for, your, for my life. The job you've been training for, that you think, I, I'm surely about to get it now, just starts to be increasingly elusive. And the job that you had, that you were looking forward to going back to, then goes. And then there's the kids. You start the year and you have this awesome relationship with them. They're on fire for Jesus, but then they go through a series of trials and they start to sit you down as parents and say, I don't even believe in Jesus. I'm not interested in the stuff you follow. And then there's our friendships, friendships that we think will just remain forever. And yet we start to find this friendship seems to be different now seems to be changing, maybe even our marriage friendship. Everything was going great, but then boom, something changes. 
Job 5 verse 7 says, As surely as sparks play upwards, man is born to trouble. And Jesus says nearly exactly the same thing in John chapter 16 when he talks about man, particularly Christians, being born to trouble. Things happen in our lives that we don't anticipate and they happen all the time. And given the amount of people in this room, I have no doubt that will be some, if not many of you, already suffering. You've brought suffering into this year. Your suffering, whatever it is, has already begun. And given the amount of people in this room in this moment, there will be some of you that will be about to start a season of suffering that right now you're completely unanticipating and completely unprepared for. And yet in God's sovereignty, it's coming. Well, with that in mind, I want to, whatever category we fall into, wherever we find ourselves this morning, I truly believe God wants to address us at the start of the year. And he wants to encourage us through this one simple, yet I think life-changing truth. And it's this. That throughout the journey of our lives we have one who is truly great, who is always with us. That whatever our year halts and however our journey unfolds together and as individuals, we have one who is truly great, who is always with us. And that's the truth, I believe, of Psalm 121. So let's read it together and enjoy this song of ascents. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. It says at the start of that psalm that it's a psalm, a song of ascents. It's really a song of the pilgrims. Once a year, all the Jews, wherever they lived, would come together for the annual feasts and they would all arrive at Jerusalem and Jerusalem was 2,700 feet above sea level. So from no matter where you were coming from, you are going to be ascending to Jerusalem. And for a pilgrim, that journey was, was a perilous one and a difficult one. There was difficult terrain, there was no motorways or freeways or like well-worn paths. It, it was difficult. They all had to find their own way there. There were no roads, just well-trodden paths. It was dangerous. The terrain would often be steep and difficult. There would be robbers along the way that knew full well that the pilgrims would be returning at this time. There would be wild beasts that wanted to devour your body. And the journey would often be long. It would usually last for several days and therefore it would be very hard on the body and no matter what age you were, you were going to be making that trip. And so what the pilgrims used to do in a desire to cultivate faith and hope and peace for the journey ahead is they would sing this song 
And as they gather together and walk together, they would be singing this all the way along in a hope and a confidence that this would instill faith and hope and confidence in God for the journey ahead. And they'd remind themselves through this song then that throughout the journey of their lives, they have one that is truly great who is always with them. How kind of the Lord to give this song to the pilgrims, don't you think? How kind, if you really were making that journey with your family, to know that you have a song that points you to the greatness of God and the truth that he's always with you. Well, how kind of the Lord at the start of our year, not knowing so much of what the year will hold for us, for him to give us this song, to encourage us, to help us as Christians for the journeys of our lives, no matter what the year holds, to ensure that we walk through it with faith and peace and hope for the road ahead. And so I've got three things I want to draw your attention to from this psalm. Three things I think the pilgrims want to draw our attention to about God from this psalm. And I think each one, every one of them should encourage our souls. Here's the first thing. Number one, our God, our helper, is all powerful. God, what encouraging news this is. Look again at verse one and two. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help, this isn't our help. Our help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. You know, this pointer to God as the maker of heaven and earth reoccurs a lot in the Psalms. And each and every time it's talked about in the Psalms, the psalmist is seeking to point us, not primarily to heaven and earth, not even primarily to the maker, but the truth of how God is the maker who is all-powerful, vast, above and beyond us in every way. He's trying to point us each and every time to the fact that God is all-powerful. And Psalm 121 is no different. They seek to sing, aware that this journey could be difficult, about the one who made the heavens and the earth. And so they would look up at the hills of Judah on the way to Jerusalem and they would remind themselves, you made these. And yet it wasn't just a reminder of how powerful God was, it was a reminder of how this one, the all-powerful, vast, great one, is my helper. Isn't that astounding? To know that the one who is truly great is also your helper. What what an inspiring reality for this pilgrims this must have been. As they look up at the hills of Judah and they're aware, these are massive. And the maker of these is my helper. And as they look up at the stars by night, and there's no street lamps going on, so they would just see millions and millions of stars above them. And as they hear the beasts in the background, as they hear the potential of robbers coming to get them in the night, to be able to look up at the stars and be aware that the one who made these is my helper. How encouraging for these pilgrims. And yet, in reality, they hadn't even seen the half, have they? They're limited. There isn't an internet. They're not traveling a lot. They're not watching telly. They haven't watched Blue Planet. They haven't seen a whole load of things. They're limited in what they've actually seen. And so they know from God's word that God can measure all the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand. They know that God can mark off the heavens 
with a span of his hand. They know that God can enclose all the dust of the earth in a measure and weigh the mountains in scales and the hills in the balance. And they know that the stars that they look at, that God created them and named them and sustains them and in his power ensures that not one is missing. They know all that. And yet in reality, they hadn't seen the half of what we've seen. Because in common grace and through the internet and books and science and planes, we've seen so much more now about the true maker and what he has indeed made. I remember many years ago they were watching Blue Planet and I just loved it. I was mesmerised and I was mesmerised really because like the psalmist I realised God made that. God did that. And there was just these, if you ever watch Blue Planet, it's just remarkable. Because you see some tiny, tiny things, tiny fish that you can't even see with your eyes. And then they put the microscope on them and you're like, wow, what, what is that? God, God made that. But then you also see the vastness. I mean, 70% of our world is covered in sea. 97% of the inhabitable space in the world is in the sea. 97%. Only 3% is the bit we live on. 97% is in the ocean. What that actually means is that there are 1,386 billion cubic kilometres of water on the earth. What that actually looks like is 1,386 billion trillion litres of water. What that actually means is that every person on the planet had 2.5 billion baths at exactly the same time. There'd still be plenty of water left over. There is a massive amount of water on the earth. And yet in the book of Isaiah we read that God, our helper can hold all that water in the hole of his hand. Our known universe is 93 billion light years across. And that's just the known universe, which basically means we just haven't built a telescope big enough to see anything beyond it yet. 93 billion light years across. What that means is that if one particle of light travelling at 186,000 miles per second, if that one light particle travelled for 93 billion years it would get from one side to the other. And yet God can mark that with the span of his hand. It's no big deal for the Lord. He's got it. All the great mountain ranges of the earth, the Himalayas, the Andes, the Rocky Mountains, the Great Dividing Range, the Atlas Mountains, all those mountains are just like dust on the scales before the Lord. You know, my dad growing up, he was a, he was a wholesale flower salesman. So I remember as a kid I'd go out with him and we'd go to all these flower shops and in the country where I lived, in the, particularly in the country, the, the flowers were also sold in fruit shops. So there was all that. And I remember, I remember us going as a kid and, and back then you, they used to have scales where you put like weights on one side and, and like fruit on the other. Do you remember those days? That was pretty cool. Now, okay, Riley, you don't remember. You missed out. But just, just, just get with the analogy. So, so there's these weights on the one side of the scales and there's these bananas or apples or whatever on the other side. Imagine how ludicrous it would have been if my dad said, you know, if you don't mind, before I pay for the bananas, could you just wipe the dust off the scales? It's a bit weird, mate, because it doesn't really weigh anything. That's exactly the point that Scripture is seeking to make in Isaiah 40. The mountains are vast for us, but they're just like dust on the scales before the Lord. You wouldn't even wipe it off because they're so small before him. And then there's the stars, the galaxies of heaven. We just came back from Nambucca on Wednesday and knowing I was preaching on this 
on this uh, psalm. I actually went outside the night before we went because it's just such an awesome sight. And when you go outside in Nambucca, because street lamps is clearly not caught on there yet, um, it's just very, very dark. And so you go out and there's just stars everywhere. There are thousands of hundreds of thousands of millions of stars. And yet in reality, although with my eyes I'm seeing millions of stars, I'm not seeing hardly any of them. In our galaxy alone, there are 400 billion stars. And it's estimated that there are 125 billion galaxies. And yet according to Scripture... God made them, he breathed them out, he named them, and he sustains them by his power so that not one is missing. My friends, it would take an awesome God to create all these things, wouldn't it? To create the seas in that way, to create the mountains in that way, in a way that he can hold them, to span off the universe, to sustain billions and billions and billions of stars would make an incredible maker of the heaven and earth. And that's the point. How encouraging this must have been for the pilgrims then to know that this creator God is their helper. But how much more encouraging it should be for us now that we've seen so much more. And we realise, and if we truly believe this, I think it would be life-changing. When we stop and we realise the one who made all this is my helper. You know, When I come across verses like that, it makes me wonder, why am I ever worried about anything? Worry becomes ludicrous when you realise he's vast. He's all-powerful. And yet that's not all he is. Number two, our God, our helper, is ever watchful. Look with me at verses three, and we'll read to verse six. He says, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you, not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. You know, it's so easy, I think, in the midst of suffering to wonder where God has gone. You ever faced that? To wonder in that moment that if God was really involved in this, I'm sure he wouldn't be allowing this to take place. Or if God was really involved in this, I I think I'd feel something different. Surely I'd feel different. And we can start to wonder then, I think incorrectly, because our feelings deceive us, that God must be on one of those bits of particles of light measuring off the universe while I'm going through this trial. Because he feels very, very distant. And yet our feelings so often live to deceive us Because the truth of Scripture, all the way through Scripture, is that throughout life's journeys, God is always with us. Ever present. Ever protecting. Ever watchful. Ever caring. And that's exactly what we learn about in these verses that we've just read. In verse 5 then we read how the Lord is our keeper. I love that word. If you look at this psalm carefully, it says keep or kept or keeper numerous times. And that's the point. He's trying to help us see that this one who is all-powerful, who is our help, will always keep you. He's going to protect you. He's going to look after you. You know, Alexander the Great was once asked, you know, how is it that the night before battle, when you can hear everybody around you preparing for battle the next day and our opposition preparing for battle, how is it that you still sleep? 
And he simply said, you know what, I can still sleep because Parmenio, my faithful keeper, is watching. He had the biggest, baddest guard you've ever seen in your life standing at the end of his bed. And so, yeah, I'm sleeping fine, thanks. My friends, the one who is effectively standing at the end of our beds throughout our lives is the maker of heaven and earth. He's our keeper. He's your keeper. He's your protector. And how does he do that? Well, he he does that, as we see in verse 3, by being a vigilant watchman, watching over our every step. There's this scene of really a mountain going through, watching where you're going to put your feet, thinking, oh, I might slip. And the point is that this vigilant watchman will watch over your every step, ensuring that your feet will never slip. They will never be moved. He will keep them in his sovereignty, And often in mystery, he will guide that foot and put it in its place, ensuring that you never slip. There will also be a shade at your right hand, we read in verse 5. See, for the pilgrims, sunstroke was a real potential, and there was a fear of lunar stroke. That's where the idea of lunacy comes from. There was this idea, if you stand in the moon too long, you're going to become a lunatic. That's where it comes from. Lunar stroke. Now, obviously, lunar stroke doesn't exist. And to be honest, when you really study this psalm, you realise he's not actually saying that. He's using a figurative expression to help us see that whether the troubles come to you by day or whether the troubles come to you by night, I've got it. I'm watching. Whether you see the things coming towards you or not, I will be there by day. And I'll be there by night. And he assures us then in verse 3 and verse 4 that he will do all this without slumbering nor sleeping. I love that. See, we all sleep, don't we? We all get tired in this room. No one of us is going to go for the next 24 hours without sleeping because you just hit a point where you've got to sleep. And whether you like it or not, you're sleeping. But not so with God. When it comes to his active care of your life, there is no siesta, no napping, no sleeping, no time off. He's ever-present, ever-caring, ever-watchful. C.H. Spurgeon says it this way. He says, No fatigue or exhaustion can ever cast our God into sleep, for his watchful eyes are simply never closed. Isn't that beautiful? If this is true, which I believe it is, this is incredible truth. What a joy it would have been then for the pilgrims as they set off on this journey, knowing all all the potential dangers they would face, to know that the one who made the great mountain ranges of Judah, the one who spins the galaxies, the one who named all these stars that I can see with my eyes, is my helper. Oh, and he's not just my helper, he's my keeper. He's always protecting me, always helping me, always holding my feet, ensuring that they don't slip. What an encouragement this must have been for them. And the truth is, my friends, what a comfort this has been to me as well. See, I remember the night when I did get admitting into hospital for the first time with my appendicitis. I remember as I was coming in and out of consciousness and I'd just been informed that I may die, that they rushed me into a CAT scan and it was about 2 o'clock in the morning by this point. It was dark outside. The hospital was reasonably quiet. And they said, well, look, you're going to have to go into this bit yourself because we need to put iodine through your system, so you're going to basically become like kind of radioactive, so 
we just all leave you at this point. And I remember lying in this bed, going through this CAT scan, by myself, having just heard you may die. And you know the words that came back to mind, which I thank the Lord for, was verse 4b. That behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. It was alive to me in that moment. And as I lay under the CAT scan, not knowing what was going to happen, I remember just thanking the Lord that I thank you, Lord, that in this moment, in the middle of the night, you're not slumbering nor sleeping. You're with me. And this psalm for me then has been one of the dearest psalms to my life. When it comes to the leading of my home, when it comes to the leading of my marriage, when it comes to the leading of my children, when it comes to the leading of this church, I'm constantly aware of the dangers and snares and toils that could come our way both for us as a church and for us as a family. I'm aware of those things. I thank God then that I have one to lift my eyes to, who's the maker of heaven and earth and who is a vigilant watchman over my life and over our lives. What a comfort this has been to me. And folks, I believe this God wants this to be a comfort for each and every one of us as Christians. See, being a Christian does not mean that our lives are all just going to be sorted and just, you know, I became a Christian and great, I've got my checkbook and pen and yeah, it's been wonderful ever since, really. Never had a bad day. Sometimes I think we can think that's what it's going to be when, a Christian, when we become a Christian. And I think sometimes we can wrongly think that, well, if I was God, I would bless me in this way, so I'm surely that's going to happen. <laughs> not always. Man is born to trouble. As surely as sparks play upwards, troubles fall. And if we read our scripture correctly, we will understand that if you are a Christian, you will suffer. And God will use that to help you grow in your mission. He will use that to help you grow in your sanctification. He will use that to help you grow in your character. And he will, through you, do a work that will develop sustenance in your life for the rest of your days. He's going to allow it and bring it for your good and his glory. And yet we should never think, ever think, that in suffering God is missing. Because he's not. See, before the foundation of the world even began, the maker of heaven and earth chose you. That's what we learn in Ephesians 1 verse 4. Before anything ever existed, he knew your name and he chose you for adoption into his family. The right time then, the Father sent forth the Son, His only begotten Son, who He loved dearly, to die in a bloody and horrific mess so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be redeemed, so that heaven could be your home, and so that you could be adopted into the very family of God. And through the gift of faith, that's exactly what happened to you. You went from being under the wrath of God to being a child of God, an heir with Jesus Christ. And so now as you find yourself on the pilgrimage of Christianity, you're not just out there by yourself. You are overseen by the great Father of all, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who's watching over you each and every step of the way. How encouraging is that, don't you think? 
There's so much that we don't know about the year ahead, but this we do know. He's keeping you. He's holding you. He's protecting you. He always will. And that's what we learn about in verses 7 through 8. We discover how long He will protect you for. How long He will hold you for. How long He will look after your life for. Look with me, verse 7. It says, The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Therein lies the third and final thing I think the pilgrims then want to bring to our attention. It's this, that our God, our helper, is forever faithful. How long will God watch over you? Will he just watch over you on Sundays or life group days? Will he just watch over you when you're doing really, really well in your spiritual disciplines? Will he just watch over you when you're just smashing it out for Jesus? Will that be the only times? Apparently not. No, he will watch over you all your days from this time forth and forevermore. Augustus Toplady, a wonderful hymn writer, in the middle of the 1700s said this about the fact that he holds us. It's a song called A Debtor to Mercy Alone. It's a wonderful hymn. Just, just listen and let the truth of these words soak into your life. A debtor to mercy alone, of covenant mercy I sing. I come with your righteousness on, my humble offering to bring. The judgments of your holy law with me can have nothing to do my Saviour's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. The word which your goodness began, the arm of your strength will complete. Your promise is yes and amen and never was forfeited yet. The future or things that are now, no power below or above can make you your purposeful God or sever my soul from your love. My name from the palms of your hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on your heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end will endure until I bow down at your throne forever and always secure. Forever and always secure. Forever and always secure. A debtor to mercy alone. Isn't that wonderful? God is not only the maker of heaven and earth. He's not only your keeper. He's going to be watching over your coming and going from this time forth and forevermore. Holding you. Keeping you watching you, and you are forever and always secure. My friends, as we begin then a journey together, another year together, in all reality, there are many, many uncertainties, are there not? Can you be guaranteed of your finances this year? 
Can you be guaranteed that you're just going to smoke it this year, that your job is just going to go from strength to another strength, that the home you've been saving up for for decades that you've just bought is definitely still going to be your home at the end of the year? Can you be sure of it? I don't think so. Can you be sure of your relationships, that they're just going to remain strong, that your marriage is going to continue to thrive? Can you guarantee that? No. What about your health? Maybe you eat great. Maybe you just smash it out when it comes to good eating, similar to myself. (laughs) Can you guarantee that because of your lifestyle and the way you eat, that you're going to be sick free this year and that you're going to see next Christmas? No. Our lives are like grass and the wind comes and blows it away and the place knows it no more. Our lives can be over in a moment. I remember a number of years ago when my friend Dan Gavetta died, 33 years old. Went out, CrossFit, great, smash it out. Felt a headache come on, collapsed. Never regained consciousness. Had a brain bleed, died. Left his wife and four children under the age of seven. Can we guarantee our health? No. No one of us can guarantee our health. There are so many uncertainties in all reality at the start of the year. If you think about it too much, it can become overwhelming. But here's how we don't be overwhelmed. Here's how we walk with faith and hope and courage for the road ahead. We walk by knowing this. Something that we can be absolutely certain of. Something that we know with absolute surety. It's this. Throughout the journey of our lives, we have one who is truly great, who is always with us. Whatever happens, we have one who is all-powerful, who stands by your side. Whatever takes place, you have one who is ever-watchful, holding your feet, holding your very lives in his hands. And he's going to keep doing that from this time forth and forevermore until you see his face. So my friends, I want to encourage you, if then suffering is already in existence in your life, or if suffering arrives for you this year, don't waste it. But lift your eyes to the hills from where your help comes from. And as you gaze at the hills, you will realize the one who is all-powerful and made them is watching over my life. He holds me. And he will never let me go. And in him then, in that moment, would you find a sweet peace. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for the song of these pilgrims. Lord, I thank you that you quickened that song into their lives and they wrote it down in a way that we now get to recite and enjoy. Realizing you wrote this psalm for us to point us to you to point us to the truth that you will always hold us. You who are all-powerful always will have us in your hands. And so, Lord, whatever happens then in our lives this year, would we walk through this year with joy and peace and hope, knowing that we know where our help comes from, the great maker of heaven and earth, 
and in you would we find that sweet peace. In Jesus' precious name, amen.